0: Our hearts. you, O oh Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, from the two songs we've sung today, do you get the general idea that this might be about lambs? <laughs> it reminded me of a message series I preached, I don't remember how long ago, but you may remember these things began appearing up here on the lectern. So I thought I'd just bring one out again today. There's a little lamb. Put him right there. I don't know where he came from. You know Christians everywhere understand that the lamb is familiar biblical image. The lamb is connected not only with Christmas but it's also connected with Easter. And though lambs are not specifically mentioned in the Christmas story, we kind of guess because there were shepherds out in the fields watching their flocks by night that there were probably sheep involved as well. I don't know if you know much about what the Bible says about lambs or sheep. The Bible makes a really big connection between Jesus and lambs. For example, in Isaiah 53, it compares the Messiah to a lamb going to be slaughtered. John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, when he was baptizing at Bethany beyond the Jordan, spotted Jesus walking one day toward him. And what did he do? He pointed at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away... The sins of the whole world. Peter talked about Jesus' blood as being the blood of a lamb. You go to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and 30 times Jesus is called the lamb. Now when we think of lambs, we normally think of gentle, helpless, little, innocent things. Compare that to the image we talked about last week. Remember Genesis 3.15, the snake The serpent. You know, children, I think, instinctively love lambs, while most of them kind of instinctively hate snakes. Those two animals, you know, I don't have a snake up here because I hate them myself. You know, they are about as far apart on the emotional scale, I think, as you can get. Now, in order to understand Jesus as being a Passover lamb, a lamb that's capable of taking away the sins of the world... What we're going to do first in today's message is going to go about 35 centuries back in time to the land of Egypt. And it's in Egypt that we find out, as we would read Exodus chapter 12 and earlier in Exodus, that the children of Israel had been slaves there for some 400 years. They were really the people that supplied most of the labor in Egypt at that time. But God raises up a man whose name is what? Moses. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, he's got this very simple little message, let my people go. But Pharaoh has absolutely no intentions whatsoever of letting his workforce go. And so God says, I think I have a plan where I can actually make him beg you to leave. And part of that plan was to send terrible judgments, which we call plagues. Each of these plagues, it kind of starts small, but they kind of build and build and build and build. Each of them is a natural disaster and it shows God's power and at the same time reveals the impotence of Egypt's false gods. I don't know if you remember the nine plagues, but in order they are turning water into blood, which in turn brought about frogs coming up popping out of the water, which in turn when the frogs died a whole bunch of gnats. And when the gnats were there, the flies came, and then there was disease on all of the livestock, and then there were boils and hails and locusts and darkness. And this last one, this thing of darkness, was a direct assault upon Ra. R-A, that's how you pronounce it, or how you would spell it, Ra. He was Egypt's sun god. Now guess who was the representative of the sun god? It was Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh was proven to be no match for the Almighty either. And even though each of these plagues caused a massive devastation on this country, Pharaoh still said, no, you can't go. But actually a couple of times he said, but maybe some of you can go. I mean, the first thing he said was, you can go a short distance out to the desert, but then you've got to come back. Another time he said, well, uh, all of the men can go, but you've got to leave the women and children behind. Or, you can all go, but you've got to leave all of your livestock behind. But each time, God said no. Very simply because God does not make deals with pagan rulers. But now we come to the tenth and final plague. And here the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 11, don't worry, I'm going to paraphrase this, when this one hits, Pharaoh is going to want you to get out of town ASAP. At midnight, the Lord said he's going to come to the land, and every firstborn would die just like that. He specified that no family would be excluded from Pharaoh's house all the way down to the lowest Egyptian slave. God would even include the firstborn of all of the cattle in his judgment. But God would spare the Israelites. He was going to do that to show a distinction between God's people and Pharaoh's people. And if you read Exodus chapter 12, it reveals his plan to save the Israelites. When the blood of the Lamb was sprinkled over the doorposts of the Jewish homes, God, the angel of death, would come and would literally do what? Pass over the houses. If he didn't see the blood, though, he would take the life of the firstborn In judgment. Now, every year since that story took place, for 3,500 years, and even yet today, Jews still celebrate Passover. It's a solemn reminder of God's amazing deliverance in Egypt. And even the minutest detail of the Passover seemed designed to always focus us back at Jesus, the Messiah. Now, what I'm going to do and on your outline, or you can see them up on of the screen, are, are 10, ten of the most notable similarities between the events of the first Passover 3,500 years ago and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I'm going to run through these pretty quick. If you go back and read in Exodus, it says the Passover lamb, lamb first of all, must be a lamb. I mean, no turtle doves, no goats, no chickens, no horses, no cows, no bull. You know, some of the other things that they used in Old Testament sacrifices. But it was specifically supposed to be a lamb. That's why John said, Behold the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Well, second, you see, it must be a male. Exodus 12 said the animals you choose must be year-old males. And of course, Jesus fulfills this prophecy when he becomes the son born of the Virgin Mary. Third, it needs to be a year old lamb. Now this means the lamb needs to be in its prime, either too young or too old. Jesus, being about 30 years old at this time, was not like the children slaughtered in Bethlehem. Neither was he as old as the people in his day would have lived. He was in his prime. The fourth thing is that he had to be without blemish. Now, what would happen is all of the men during Passover would gather all the lambs that were going to be sacrificed. You bring your lamb, and they would carefully inspect these lambs to make sure that there were no open sores or bald patches on them or bare skin or sickness of any kind. 1 Peter 1.19 says, Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. You may remember that Pilate, even at the end, said, I find nothing wrong with this man. I find no fault in him. You know, as I was studying for this and I was looking at different things, I found it to be kind of significant that the lambs for Passover were chosen on the tenth day of the month, but not sacrificed until the fourteenth day. That meant that there were four days to carefully examine this lamb for any defects. Now, think with me for a moment. That means that if Jesus came into Jerusalem on what? Palm Sunday and was crucified on Good Friday, how many days are there in between? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? Four days. Thursday. During those momentous four days, what happened to Jesus? Jesus was investigated and looked over by just about anybody and everything—the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes—they were all trying to find the minutest flaw in his character. But in the end, they all had to say there was nothing wrong with him; he was without blemish. It also said that lamb needs to be slain and roasted. Exodus 12 is is pretty clear on this point. All of the lambs were supposed to be slain or slaughtered at the same time, the exact same time, and all of the blood drained out of them. Then these carcasses were roasted, and eaten whole. They never ate them boiled, they never ate them raw, because these were pagan customs in their day. Anything that was left over after eating, they burned. So the lamb had to be entirely consumed. Now, think about Jesus. Not only did Jesus die, but his death was a complete sacrifice. He died the death of a criminal hanging up on a cross, the hated Roman cross. And it was not the noble death of, like, Socrates, who drank poison, but rather it was the humiliating death of a man rejected by the world that he had come to save. Number six, it also says that it, it must have no broken bones. Now, you know from the stories we're going to hear during Lent that it was the custom of the Romans to do what? Break the legs of those people on the cross in order to hurry up their death. But in John chapter 19, it says that when they came to Jesus, they didn't do that. Why? Because he was already dead. And verse 36 of chapter 19 actually says, Not one of his bones will be broken. That's actually an Old Testament quote comes from a Psalm. 13. 34 verse 20 but it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 The next thing that's kind of interesting is said that these sacrifices need to be between the evenings Very specific as to when the Passover lamb is to be sacrificed between the evenings This is a uh, uh, an unusual phrase but it, it's a literal translation of the Hebrew that's found in Exodus which means somewhere between 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The New Testament tells us that Jesus was crucified when third hour, meaning 9 a.m. since the Jews had a 24-hour clock. Matthew 26 says that there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. In other words, from what, noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Shortly after that, somewhere between the hours, 3 and 5, Jesus utters his final words, and he dies on the cross, and his body was taken down before sundown, which would have been six o'clock. So, what happens? Very literally, Jesus dies between the evenings, just like every Passover lamb was. Eight, it was to be sacrificed for all the people. Exodus 12 again says that lambs must be sacrificed for every man, for every family in Israel and they all had to be slaughtered at the same time. What this meant was that the entire community all participated in a blood sacrifice simultaneously. By the same token, Jesus was crucified by the Romans on behalf of all the Jews. Everybody participated in his death and while a few lambs Few thousand lambs died for a few thousand people. Jesus died for all people. Now, number nine says that the blood needed to be sprinkled. Once that lamb had been slaughtered, the blood drained out of him. The father would take a leafy bush, he would dip it in the blood, put some on each side of the door frame and over the top of the door. The blood would be a sign for the family that they had actually sacrificed this lamb. Just like the Lord commanded. Exodus says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now again, friends, this pictures not the death of Jesus, but our application of his death to our hearts by faith. That's why First Peter says the sprinkling of the blood of Christ on our hearts. See, the lamb itself could not save a Jew. Not even a dead lamb could save a Jew. Only the blood sprinkled over the doorpost could spare the people from this horrible judgment of God. Now, in the same way, who is the only hope of our salvation? It's Jesus. Jesus, God's lamb, offered for the sins of the world. But Jesus' blood only saves when taken by faith. People who reject his blood, even the Lamb of God can't save them. See, the Israelites may have done a lot of really wise things. They may have availed themselves of a lot of preventative measures against the destruction of the angel, but if they had not sprinkled that blood over the doorposts, they would have died with the rest of the Egyptians. And in the same way, a lot of people today try to really spruce up their image. They try to do all kinds of good things to better their reputation as sinners. But the cross of Christ and the shed blood of Christ is your only protection. The last thing says the meat must be fully consumed. Some of you probably already guess where this might be leading. But if you have Passover, sometimes churches have these Seder meals... Uh, you have the blood shed, the meat roasted. The family got together to eat the meat, uh, with generally standing up with all of their coats on because they were ready to go. They would have some unleavened bread to remind them of the days of Egypt. They had some bitter herbs which would remind them of their bitter 400-some years in Egypt. And, and it was a reminder that his life was taken, his blood was shed, the blood was applied and the meaning for this I, I find pretty plain, because Jesus saves us, according to scripture, when we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now what's that called? Communion. It's communion, isn't it? Jesus used those very terms in John chapter 6. He said this speaking not literally of his, uh, of his flesh and blood, but of what saving faith is all about. We're to take Jesus completely, wholly, absolutely, and without any qualification. When we take Him as a Savior, then we are literally eating and drinking at His great Passover feast. Now, you probably know the rest of the story. The death angel stops at every home in Egypt, where the Israelites, where the Israelites lived, which is in the land of Goshen, from Pharaoh's palace to the lowest household loud wailing that night. Screams no doubt pierced the night. Family after family began to scream as they discovered dead children in the middle of the night. And soon after, Pharaoh called them and he begged them to leave town before anybody else died. That's why God told them, stand up, put your clothes on, and eat in a hurry. Because the orders to get out of town are going to come quick. Now see, God struck down the false gods of Egypt and the same way delivered his own people by the blood of many lambs. And in the same way, even today, through the blood of Jesus the Lamb, we are saved from God's wrath. And we're set free from the penalty of sin. It is in and through and by him that God has delivered us once and for all. Now that's the story. The question is, I guess Luther asked this, what does this mean? I mean, what does this mean for us? Well, let me, in closing, share four abiding little lessons with you. Here's lesson number one. Jesus, the Christ, is God's Lamb. I hope you all know that, that Jesus is the only person who meets all the qualifications to pay for your sins. He fulfills every detail of Old Testament prophecy. The 330-some prophecies in the Old Testament, all of them are fulfilled in Jesus. I only gave you 10 of them this morning. This explains also a little bit of the Christmas story. Do you remember when Jesus was taken to the temple after he was born and Simeon spotted him? Simeon took little Jesus, gathered him in his arms, and blessed him. And then he said, Jesus is going to be the cause of the rising and the falling of many in Israel indicating that some people would follow him, others would oppose him. And then he looked at Mary and gave her a special word. He said, and a sword will pierce your soul too. A very early reference to the death of Jesus. From the very beginning, I think Mary understood that Jesus was going to face some suffering somewhere along the path of life. That's why if you look at some of the great paintings from the past, you ever see paintings of the, you know, the Madonna and the Christ child, Mary and the Christ child? Mary, if you look at her, is almost always, her face is painted so that it looks as if she had great sorrow, great heaviness. Often in the picture, it almost looks like she's gazing somewhere. And some people have said it's like she's gazing into the distance and seeing a cross on the hill. Since the lamb must die in order for the blood to save, Jesus must someday die and his blood must be shed. That faith, that's the appointed destiny of the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, specifically your sin, my sin, everybody's sin. Second thing to remember is this, that there is no salvation without sacrifice. No salvation without sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You know, a living lamb can be cute and cuddly, but it saves no one. A dead lamb can save no one. His blood, no matter how much it squeezed out of it, saves no one. In God's economy, only shed blood can forgive sins, and as the great lamb of God, Jesus, must go to the, go to the cross in order to save the world. Here's the third abiding lesson. Even Jesus cannot save you without faith. That would make kind of surprise you a little bit. Even Jesus cannot save you without faith. I mean, suppose this Israelite and Israelite that night refused to sacrifice a lamb. What would have happened? His firstborn would have died. Being a Jew would not save him that night. It was not national origin. That matters, but it was faith in God's plan of salvation. The same is true for all of us. I mean, we aren't saved by coming to First Lutheran Church. We're not saved by even being Lutherans. For that fact, when God looks down from heaven, the only thing that matters is that he sees the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of your heart. Here's number four. If you refuse God's lamb, there is no other plan of salvation. Let me put this in the form of a story. I want you to picture two men in Egypt about 3,500 years ago. Two men. And they are together that afternoon of that fateful day. Kind of a strange Friendship because one of them is a very good, very moral Egyptian. The other one is an immoral, dishonest Israelite. Somehow these two guys get together, and despite their many cultural differences, they become good friends. The Egyptian really loves this Israelite, even though he doesn't understand what he considers to be his weird religion. The Israelite sees a great advantage in being friends with an Egyptian particularly in his job and in his way of life. And so it was that day that afternoon they were probably sitting somewhere having a cup of coffee and talking about the events of that day. And the Israelite starts telling him about his plan about how he plans to kill a lamb and put blood on his doorpost that night only the Israelite doesn't see any. He doesn't see any Purpose in doing something weird like that. I mean, he tells the Egyptian, Why waste a perfectly good lamb? This is my best lamb, and why do I do this for some goofy endeavor? And the Egyptian looks at him and kind of says, Yeah, I agree. But at the same time, that Egyptian is saying, But I just seen nine plagues, and I'm wondering. But these guys finish their coffee and they decide to go away and they decide to get together the next day at the city gate and have another cup of coffee and talk. But that conversation, that cup of coffee never takes place. Later that afternoon, the Israelite goes home and he keeps putting off killing his best lamb. His wife finally starts nagging on him a little bit. Come on, honey, kill the lamb. You know, you got to kill that lamb. I'll do it later. Oh, come on, do it now. Do it now. Don't, don't wait. Uh, I'll get to it. And he kind of delays killing that lamb until, oh, about 1030. And at 1030, his wife is at least somewhat relieved that the lamb is dead, but he hasn't drained the blood or done anything else. She's, she's beginning to worry that he is going to wait too long. I mean, this couple has four children. The firstborn is a boy. He is the future of this family. Looks so much like his daddy. The family finally gathers around the table. 11.30 comes, and the man is still delayed. 11.45, and the, the man has not done anything other than to kill this lamb and eat it with his family. And his wife begins to cry, Why do you care so little about your children? And so rather grudgingly, you know the way guys do it when they get an egg into doing something, okay. He goes outside, he's got his bowl of blood, and he's got his kiss of plant, and he goes out there and he slops blood all the way around this door, and he probably walks in and he says to his wife, There, now are you happy? Midnight comes. Midnight goes. Nothing happens. Not a sound in his house. Not a sound in all the land of Goshen. Scripture even says not even a dog was barking that night. But in Egypt, screaming, shrieks, wailing, women crying, fathers shouting. Everywhere firstborn sons are dying in their sleep. Cattle dead in the stalls. Not a family is left untouched by death. In the home of that very good, moral Egyptian man, Their sudden terror, their sudden wailing. His 15 year old son, their comfort in their old age, had suddenly stopped breathing. He died so suddenly that they don't even get a chance to say goodbye. Now, why did he die? Because there was no blood on the door. There's no blood on the door. But what if that Egyptian had put blood on his door and the Israelite had not? then the roles would have been reversed. Why? Because it's the blood of the Lamb that makes the difference. For people who reject the blood, God has absolutely no other plan of salvation. That's why I'm saying, friends, you need a Lamb. You need a Lamb. And guess what? That Lamb must die. And you must apply the blood to the doorpost of your heart. You must trust in the shed blood, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The question is, where are you going to find such a lamb? Look at the cross. That's where you gaze upon the Son of God. That's where you see and where you hear again every time you look at the cross those words that John the Baptist said nearly 2,000 years ago. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb you need. He is God's Lamb for your sin and He's your entry into everlasting life with Him. May God bless us as we worship the Lamb. Please stand and join with me at this time in our affirmation of faith.